Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 8. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. This is the word of our Lord. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are so grateful for your word. The prophet Ezekiel gives us an amazing vision of the power of your word. When you told him to preach to the valley of dry bones, they came to life, not because of his power, but because of the power of your word. Father, we pray that through your word this morning, you would revive us, you would bring new life, you would encourage and strengthen your people. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So how are you today? Good? You know, that's an interesting question, how are you today? You never quite know what you're going to get when you ask someone that question, do you? Rarely are people honest with you. Sometimes, but rarely. Usually you get a flippant, oh, I'm okay, or I'm good. Sometimes you get a a witty response. You know, I'm upright and above ground, able to sit up and take nourishment. I'm sure you've heard that one before, right? You never quite know what you're going to get. Every once in a while, that simple question can throw people into a real tailspin, almost an existential crisis, and and you're wondering, what's going on? I just asked you how you are. I have a, a relative, an aunt, who's like that. It'll take her five minutes to answer your question, how are you today? And not because she's explained, she just doesn't know. She takes five minutes to think about it before she answers. It's painful. As you read through Romans 7 and 8, I feel like Paul would be one of those kind of people that enters into this existential crisis if you asked him, how are you today, Paul? 
It'd be painful as you waited for Paul to answer. Romans 7 and 8, he, he does that. He answers, how are you today? But he doesn't just answer it for himself. He's answering that question for all of us. So today as we look at Romans 7 and 8, let's have us a little bit of a crisis. As we think about how we are. It's not a simple answer. Matter of fact, it's going to be a three-part answer. The first part's great. How are we today? We're great. Because we're walking in newness of life. That's been Paul's theme since Romans 6, as he's been exploring the implications of what it means to be united with Christ. In Romans 6, he unpacks that a little bit, and he says, you know, when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ, and so you died with him, and now you've been made alive in this newness of life with Christ. Romans 6, he explores a little bit about what that looks like in relationship to sin, Because you died with Christ, you died to sin. That old man, he's dead now. And you've been made alive, and you walk in newness of the Spirit. Romans 7, he shifts his focus just a little bit, and he starts to talk about what our death and resurrection in Christ means to our relationship with the law. He uses this marriage analogy in the beginning of chapter 7, and he says, in essence... You were married, you were wed to the law. And we know that that relationship is till death do us part. You were bound to the law as a wife is bound to a husband. But now you are freed from it because you died. You died in Christ and you died to the law. You're free from that relationship, that marriage to the law. And now you belong to another, Christ. And you're freed to bear fruit to God. You're freed to serve in a new way, not according to the letter of the law, but according to the Spirit. This week as I was reading through Romans 7, it struck me as funny how the middle section of Romans 7 reads almost like a breakup letter. One of those kind of classic, it's not you, it's me, kind of breakup letters. Paul's saying, you know what, the law was good, the law was perfect, the law is holy, the law is righteous, it's me. I'm flawed, I'm weak, I'm sinful, the law didn't have the power I needed, so our relationship, our marriage wasn't a good one. But it's more than just a breakup. Paul says, we've died. We're freed from that bondage to the law. And now we walk in newness of life according to the Spirit. Where this possibility of really, truly bearing fruit for God is alive. Because we're alive in Christ. So how are we today? Well, the first part of the answer is we're great. We're walking in newness of life with the Spirit guiding us and indwelling us. That's only the first part of the answer. The second part is we're struggling. We're struggling mightily. Uh, Romans 7 
disturbs any kind of rosy-eyed optimism we might have about the Christian life. Uh, Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do them. And the things that I hate, that's what I find myself constantly falling into. I don't do what I want to do, and I keep doing that which I don't want to do. It's as if Paul is describing for himself and for us a case of, I'm going to call it the spiritual yips. Do you know what the yips are? It's a sports term. It describes an athlete who's very accomplished in their sport, who all of a sudden has forgotten how to do the things that they've done hundreds and thousands of times before. One of the classic examples of the yips was a Mets catcher, Mackie, what was his name, Mackie Sasser. Mackie Sasser was a Mets catcher from mid-80s to early 90s. At one point, he was one of the best catchers in the league. Great batting average, great defensive player. But all of a sudden, he forgot how to throw the ball from home plate to the pitcher. He'd sit there and he'd tap his glove four or five times before he'd throw it. And then the throw would, it looked like a little eight-year-old throwing the ball back. It was, you know, looked ridiculous. It got to be so disruptive that the fans in then Shea Stadium would start counting how many yips he'd have. And then they'd clap when he finally got the ball back to the pitcher. This guy had been playing baseball probably since the time he was five. He knew how to throw the ball back, but he just couldn't do it. John Lester, the Cubs pitcher, is having the same kind of struggles and throwing the ball to first place. He can throw the the ball to home plate 95 miles an hour, put it wherever he wants it, but he can't throw the ball to first base. I, I know from experience how frustrating the yips can be. I had it my senior year of high school, not in baseball, in diving. I've been diving since the time I was uh, in seventh grade. I knew how to dive. One of the first dives I learned was called an inward dive. It's super easy. It's one of the first dives I would teach someone how to do as a coach. In my senior year, I was doing inward one and a half, inward doubles. I was working on an inward two and a half. All of a sudden, I forgot how to do an inward dive. I'd go up, I'd leave the board, and I'd freak out and crash on my back. And I would spend hours every practice trying to figure out how to do this simple dive that I had done 100 times. It was so frustrating. Paul, he's describing a case of the spiritual yips in Romans 7. We know what to do, he's saying. We have the power through the Spirit to do it. And yet, we keep doing what we don't want to do. We keep spiking the ball into the ground. We keep double clutching. We keep crashing on our backs. We keep doing what we don't want to do. There's been so much debate about who Paul is describing in Romans 7. Is he describing himself as a Christian or is he describing himself before he came to Christ? And it's a pretty intense debate. One of the most debated chapters of the Bible is Romans 7. Those who say, no, this, poss- this can't possibly be Paul, point to the fact about, uh, of how negative Paul is. He says, I'm, I'm a slave to sin. I'm sold in, under sin. He's really negative. 
Despite that, I think Paul is describing himself as a genuine, mature Christian. He's describing us as genuine, mature Christians who still struggle daily to do what we know we ought to do. I think this is Paul as a Christian because later, in a different letter, 1 Timothy, Paul can say, this is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Even late in life, Paul understood, yes, I'm a mature Christian. Yes, I'm an apostle. But I'm still a sinner. Not only is it to conform this idea that this is Paul, that's a Christian writing, not only does it conform to what we see about Paul later in other letters, it conforms to what I know about myself. I'm not certainly a super saint or an apostle or anything like that, but I have been a Christian for, well, a long time, 35 years or so. And I know that every day it's a struggle. Every day it's a battle. Every day it requires repentance as I fall into those patterns of sinful living. And from the saints that I know and admire, I know it's their pattern too, and it's their struggle. He's describing his experience. And it's this battle between what he knows is true. I am dead. That old man has died. I am walking in newness of life. I am set free. And yet, sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I forget and act as though I'm a slave. What I know objectively, I don't live out subjectively. I know these things, and yet I forget, and I fall back into those habits, fall back into that sinful pattern. It's like, have you ever moved from one house on one side of town to another, and all of a sudden you find yourself driving home, and you're like, wait, I don't live here anymore. I just went on autopilot. Paul's saying, I don't live there anymore. I don't live in that realm of sin and death and condemnation, but I still drive my car there all the time. Because I'm in that habit. So how are we doing today? Well, we're great. We're walking in newness of life but we still struggle. And it's a desperate struggle at times. You can sense Paul's frustration. He says, who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death? I'm at my wit's end. Who will save me from this? That desperation doesn't have the final word. Who will save me from this? Thanks be to God who delivers me in Christ Jesus. So how are we doing today? The third part of that answer is we are at peace. We are at peace. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. J.C. Ryle, 
who wrote one of the best books on holiness I have ever read, said the child of God has two great marks about him. He is known by his inward warfare as well as by his inward peace. That's what Paul is describing here. We're in this struggle, and yet we know there is no condemnation. That's one of the greatest sentences of the Bible. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about each one of those words for just a minute. Therefore, that links what he's just said about no condemnation to what just came before that. Who will save me from this body of death? Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation. I used to walk and live under this regime of sin and death. But Christ, Christ delivered me from that regime. And now I live in his kingdom, marked by righteousness and peace and holiness and the Spirit of God. That regime of sin and death didn't let go of us easily. It required Christ to come in the flesh, to take sin on in himself, and condemn it on the cross. But now that that has done in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. That's the word therefore. Think about the word now. When commentators look at that word now, they always point to the fact that a new era has dawned. Before Christ, you had promises. You had the hope of the dawn. But now, the dawn has come. And there's light, and there's hope, and there's life. That's true. I love that truth. But I think the word now is intentionally put in this letter to connect it to what Paul has just been saying. He's just admitted to this deep struggle he has with sin. And he's saying now, even now, as I walk through this struggle, as I fail, as I do what I don't want to do, even now, there's no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no, no condemnation. That seemed like such a simple thing, right? Such, a, such a, a simple grammatical construction. There's no condemnation. But in the Greek, it, it's not just a simple construction. It's emphatic. There's other ways he could have said it that would have just meant, oh, there's no condemnation. But he says it emphatically. There is no, absolutely no condemnation. Not now, not ever, not of any kind. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that word condemnation, it's a legal term. It can mean verdict or judgment. It also means penalty or punishment. I think it means both here. There is now, therefore, no verdict against you. It's been pronounced You are innocent because you are in Christ Jesus. And there is no punishment left because the punishment has already been meted out in Christ Jesus. 
So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Okay. I've explained that sentence as best I can. I, I hope you understand the logic of that sentence. But do you feel the weight of that sentence? What it means is that grace doesn't just come and say, okay, you're forgiven, now go and get it right. No. There's no condemnation, not now, not ever. Feel that. Feel that freedom, that weight roll off you. Grace continues in our life. As we struggle and win, those are good days. And as we struggle and lose, grace is still there declaring, proclaiming over us no condemnation. This week I read a phrase that I love. I think I'm going to write it and just stick it on my desk, tape it to it. It said, no condemnation is the banner flying triumphantly over all those who are in Christ. It, the banner doesn't get taken down on bad days and put up on good days. It stays there. It waves over us because we're in Christ. So there's no condemnation. You ever have you know, those whiteboards, those dry erase boards? Imagine this. There's a dry erase board over your life and it says condemned, guilty, treasonous sinner. Christ comes and, and he wipes that verdict away. But he doesn't leave it blank. He now, in permanent marker, that cannot be erased, writes no condemnation in big, bold script. And there's no more room on that whiteboard for anyone to write anything against you now. You can't write something on that board against yourself. Your accuser can't. The board's filled permanently with that declaration, no condemnation, and that declaration hangs over your life in bold script. That one sentence stands forever over you. No condemnation. So many of the commentators that I read this week said that Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And we're not done with Romans 8. Uh, I said, I almost said Paul's going to be there next week. Yeah, Paul will be there all week. Uh, Bob is going to be there next week. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible. One said that it's the inner sanctuary and the cathedral of the Christian faith. It's one of those chapters, it's one of those sentences that's hard to mess up. But you can do it. You can mess it up. Here's three ways that this can get messed up. First, you can mess it up by adding a but into the sentence. There's no condemnation, but... That there's no condemnation unless or except... 
And sometimes we fill that in with a, a category. Maybe it's a category of people. Or, or a category of sin that we deem to be so heinous that it must be condemned. Maybe you say, there's no condemnation, but Dan, you don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know my struggle. You don't know my sin. You don't know my proclivity to mess it up. Don't let the butt creep into that sentence. It'll mess it up. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You can also mess it up by using this chapter as a license to sin. I can see how that happens. There's no condemnation. You're freed from the law. You're no longer married to it. Well, great. License to sin. No, Paul didn't see it that way. He said, you're freed from the law so that you can go out and bear fruit for God. That's what will bring you deep, abiding joy, eternal joy. That's what you were made for. Now you're freed to do it. You're freed so that you can serve in a new way, according to the Spirit, Paul says. And there's no condemnation so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. St. Augustine said that law was given so that grace would be sought. And grace was given so that the law would be fulfilled. Having been forgiven, having been declared free, having been redeemed, we can now use the law as it was intended to be used. Not as a way of pursuing acceptance before God, pursuing justification, but as a guide to life and holiness, as an outline of what it means to love God and love neighbor. Have you ever tried to do a job with a tool that was ill-equipped for it? You're digging a hole and you don't have a shovel so you use a hoe. Or you have this massive project and you don't have an electric saw so you use a handsaw. It is so frustrating. We've been freed from that frustration of using this, the law to do what it wasn't intended to do. Now we have freedom to use the law as it was intended. So don't mess it up by using that declaration there's no condemnation as a license to sin that messes it up you can also mess it up by declaring that sentence no condemnation without direct and specific reference to Christ as though some vague fuzzy notion of the love of God will somehow get you there Some people want to read this sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation because, well, God just wouldn't do that. It messes it up. That's not what it says. That robs it of its power and of its glory. That's what I would call the gospel of the teddy bear God. It's not the gospel of our God. So much of Romans has been built to get us to this place, written to get us to this place where we understand the righteous 
anger of God towards our sin. He's shown us himself. He's shown us his law through nature, through the written code. We ought to know what we do, and yet we repeatedly fail to do it, and his wrath is deserved. He is a just judge who condemns sin. But he's a merciful God who sent his son to step into flesh to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, outside of Christ, there is nothing but condemnation. But in Christ, there's peace. In Christ, there's reconciliation and righteousness. Don't mess it up by taking Christ out of the equation. You rob the gospel of all of its power, every ounce of it. There's no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't get duped into believing the gospel of the teddy bear God. Instead, embrace the gospel of the God who loves you so much that he would send his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sin so that you might be reconciled to him. So Christian, how are you today? As you contemplate that, remember, you're a new creation. You're walking in newness of life. Yes, you struggle. Welcome to the club. Being reborn means being born into the struggle because now the Spirit has awakened in you a desire to please God like you never had before. And yes, you will sin. Yes, you will fail. And yes, that banner will still fly over your life. Because of Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. I can hardly contemplate better news, a better word, that in you we are completely set free from sin and death. It has no claim over us. Not now, not ever. We thank you for what you did to make that possible in your son Jesus Christ who is our Lord. We thank you that he shed his blood. Thank you that he erased that sentence of condemnation. Thank you that he will fulfill in us through your spirit the righteous requirements of the law. We thank you. We pray that you would fill us with your peace. Help us to understand, to remember that we've been set free, to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Help us to walk in the power of your spirit and in the freedom that you have given us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.